Good evening and welcome back. My beginning place tonight will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30. And shortly after that, a brief reference to Isaiah chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Beginning with the Corinthian reference context, this is Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And we know it was a troubled church. Much of the letter is what we call remedial, corrective, admonitions, solutions from God through Paul to the church and for our edification. In this part of the letter, Paul has written sharply about their abuse of the Lord's Supper. They were doing something that involved eating, but with such irreverence and disorder and absence of worship, Paul said, what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. And he deals with all this by making this statement in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 30. He said, this is why... Many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. There is no evidence that this is to be understood literally, that because of their misconduct they were getting physically weak and ill, and some were dying. The context wouldn't justify that. Indeed, and instead the idea is, they were spiritually weak and sick, and some were moving towards spiritual death in their conduct. Now, this is not the only time in the Bible where one spiritual condition is described figuratively in terms of illness. So now, the Isaiah reference. In Isaiah chapter 1, as the prophet convicts the people of Judah of their sin, listen to his description in Isaiah 1, Verses 5 and 6, now the context is the sin of the nation. And here's what God said through Isaiah. Isaiah 1, 5 and 6. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of your foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. They were sick spiritually. And we use this kind of figurative language today, I think. Sometimes when we hear of someone who's guilty of some evil, perhaps violence or some perversion, we respond by saying, that's sick. We don't mean they need to go to the doctor or the hospital. We mean they need the great physician. They are morally ill, spiritually ill. They need to take their symptoms and their condition to Jesus Christ and apply his remedy by the activity of faith and repentance. In repentance and obedience to him, we can be made well, healed of spiritual illness. And then in our continued obedience as a disciple of Christ, we can maintain 
good spiritual health and improve in spiritual health even though with age and infirmity our physical health may diminish. Now that's the setup for what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk to you tonight about four chronic conditions. Four chronic conditions. This sermon becomes a spiritual health checkup. Nobody in this building should minimize the value of maintaining good spiritual health and growth, taking ourselves in for a checkup. I hope this will help you as preparing this has helped me. Four chronic conditions. Chronic complaining. The word chronic means persisting. It is something that is repeated over a long period of time. We know people, for example, who have chronic physical conditions, asthmatics, and we hear of chronic heart disease, and the condition persists. The symptoms reoccur. A variety of treatments are applied. But those people, we know with these medical chronic conditions, didn't choose them. There are people who have made the choice to be chronic complainers. Nothing is ever the way they want. The weather, the government, the work conditions, the neighborhood, it's all going bad. Chronic complaining. Not problem solving. Not legitimate grievances. Not the necessary and righteous exposure of wrong. Just a habit of chronic Complaining. So, two or three weeks ago, I'm preparing material for this sermon. And I think I have it all complete, worked out. And then Focus Magazine comes out, a paper put out by Christians. And there's an article by Tim Jennings, who was here a few years ago. And his content was so well done on this subject, I just pulled it over into this sermon. And I now give him credit. First, Tim gave some ideas from a book by John Gordon called The No Complaining Rule. Very practical tips that have some value and some things here that I need. Change the negative to a positive was one of the ideas. When you catch yourself complaining, stop and say, but... And then add a positive thought. For example... I don't like driving an hour to work, someone might say, but I am thankful I can drive and I can have a job. And the next suggestion was focus on get to instead of have to. So the author of this book said we say things like, I have to go to work, I have to mow the lawn, I have to pick up the kids. Instead, shift your perspective and realize you get to do these things. Focus on feeling blessed instead of stressed. And there were a number of other recommendations that Tim mentioned from this book that I thought were good. These are good. But then Brother Jennings opened another book and he added these thoughts about chronic complaining. One, Tim said, 
thank God more. Habitual arguing and complaining denies God's goodness. Thanksgiving prizes it. The more aware we are of God's goodness, the less we will see to complain about. Find the good and say thanks to God for it. And then finally, Tim said, memorize Philippians 2.14. He's talking about that phrase that says, do all things without complaining and grumbling. And Tim said, post this verse on the hall of your home and then post it on the wall of your heart. I think that's good. Do all things without complaining. I'm thankful to Tim Jennings for helping me with this point. Even if his help came several days after I started preparing this material. Chronic conditions. Chronic procrastination. Does that hit anybody? Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Do you ever make a list, either on paper or in your mind, of things you believe you need to do? And you discover after a few days there was no follow-through. You have this good idea, this valuable project you believe you can and should do. You even enjoy thinking about it and imagining yourself in the middle of that project. And it creates some motivation. And maybe you even pray about it, but then it just dies and fades away. Weeks or months later, your mind revisits that good intention. I thought about this six months ago. And you may give yourself some grief about the fact that you didn't do it. So you put it down again on your memo pad. I really need to get on that project. I should do that. I will do that. And it slips away again. I tell you, it happens to me. Maybe some of you discover the same thing. Sort of like New Year's resolutions that seem to slip away by the end of February. And maybe you remember in June it's gone again in August. Where this really hurts us is when the intention or project is something God expects us to do. And we know God expects us to do this sort of thing and we just put it off. And tomorrow never seems to come. And we are familiar with what the Bible says in James 4, 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Here's where James takes it. Verse 17, James 4. Verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Sometimes we outwardly and vocally boast about these good projects we're going to do. We pray about it maybe. What does James say? All 
such boasting is evil. It's nothing but boasting until it becomes action. Chronic conditions. Spiritual fatigue. There are people who just never really get serious about really being a Christian. I'm going to use this image and then I'll show you where I got it later. I'm talking about people who never just really get serious about being a Christian. If the fork gets into the plate and captures the food, it never seems to be lifted to the mouth. So there's no nourishment. I'm talking about people who were baptized, taught from the Word of God, taught about the various duties that ought to follow baptism. They know they ought to assemble with the saints. They've read that and heard that. They know temptation can be resisted. They know they can be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. They know about honesty and moral purity and praying and serving others. They just never take it seriously to the point of action. Never change, never grow, never get serious about serving the Lord. Now, I know that you usually don't find these people in a Sunday evening assembly. So why am I dealing with this with a Sunday night group? Because, first of all, I don't want any of us to ever decline to that level of spiritual laziness. And then I want to tell you this. Some of these people who are now chronically spiritually fatigued at one time in their life came to every service. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I'll tell you this, and I may mention it later. We must never deceive ourselves into thinking that our presence in a building three times a week protects us from temptation. It may supply nourishment from the Word, but are we using it after we leave this place? Now, the image that I used a minute ago, do you remember that? I talked about putting the fork in the food, in the plate, but never lifting the fork. Here it is. Proverbs 26, 15. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. May each of us determine from now until we die, we will continue to seek first the kingdom of the Lord, abound in the work of the Lord, and the fork, the fork will not only capture the food, but bring it up to the mouth to nurture us in the way of the Lord. Chronic friendship with the world. When you read the Bible and you see the word world, always look into the context around the word, the sentences before and after, and determine from the context how the word is being used in that setting, in that passage. Sometimes it's used in the sense of humanity. All people, God so loved the world. Sometimes the term is in reference to the physical world. In several passages, though, the word is used to identify everything around us 
that is hostile to God and that entices us and beckons us to become attached to it instead of God. The ideas, the enticements, the materialism, the sensual invitations that may be subtle, the language, the false practices of man-made religion. Here's something really instructive about what we're talking about in 1 John 2, 15 to 17. John begins with a prohibition. And then he identifies the elements of that prohibition. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here's John's definition, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we're not talking here about all people universally. We're not talking about the physical, natural world. We're talking about those things hostile to God. The desires of the flesh, the lust or desires of the eyes, pride in possessions or things. Think of these, think of these as temptation zones where we can stumble and slowly move away from God. John identifies the danger of romance with the world when he says, in terms of a warning that he crafts, do not love the world or the things in the world. What helps me about that is to explore the idea of romance. Romance generally begins with flirting. People are slowly moving toward each other. The initial steps of a permanent relationship. The world is always flirting with us. Even people who come to a Sunday evening assembly. The world is always flirting with us. The world is appealing to us. Showing us what it has to offer. In lust and consumption and corruption. So John's warning should be taken seriously. In the early stages of the flirting, just say no. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now let's take another step into that. To explore that further, I shouldn't even let friendship with the world begin. Not not even to mention flirting in romance and falling in love with the world. Not even friendship. James 4, verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I get the impression some people just want to be friendly with the world. And that friendship turns into flirting that turns into romance. And before you know it, you violated John's prohibition. Do not love the world. And I'm afraid this can happen to us in very gradual steps if we're not well disciplined with the word. If we don't get the fork with the meat, 
out of the plate and into our system. We don't jump right into what we know is wrong. But we ease our way in that direction if we're not exceedingly careful and spiritually nurtured. Perhaps in entertainment or dress or language, just a little compromise here and another compromise. We don't go to a bar and get drunk and go home with someone, but we may take little, little steps in the wrong direction. Chronic friendship with the world, dabbling around. As close as we can get, we're flirting with spiritual death. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. I pulled out something that I used and quoted from years ago. When we attend to this world, care for its cares, love it, please it, and serve it, we become not simply woefully misguided, but slaves to the world. And I took this next part from a book by Edwin Lutzer. He said, Worldliness is excluding God from our lives and therefore consciously or unconsciously accepting the values of a man-centered lifestyle rather than a God-centered lifestyle. And then he said, Worldliness is not only doing what is forbidden, but also wishing it were possible to do it and entertaining it in your dream world and then becoming enslaved to the world. Sunday night people, let's never think that because we come on Sunday night, the devil can't tempt us with the things of the world. Now, I could stop here and we could go home, but you know I've said that many times. Here's where this kind of study must conclude. I'm going to use this illustration that I've used throughout the sermon about illness. What if a doctor ran tests and he came to you in the exam room and he says, you have a chronic illness, and then he leaves the room. Or he says, you can go see the clerk and take care of your copay. And you're saying, and you're thinking, wait, wait, come back here. I want to know what can be done about this. What is the treatment if I have a chronic illness? So, the same as a preacher of the word. I must not just expose our sin and open up our weaknesses to full view of us and engage in some sort of diagnostic work from the pulpit. I've always got to get to the treatment. If you are chronically ill or beginning to exhibit symptoms, what can be done? The answer, the treatment, the remedy is the great physician. In Mark 2.17, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, here's your problem, and I'm the remedy. Jesus offered himself on the cross as the remedy for all spiritual disease. So, if I have a diagnosis... If I begin to exhibit any of the symptoms we've studied together tonight, 
The only remedy is to turn my case over to the great physician. What the preacher does, what preachers do, I tell young preachers sometimes, you write a referral to the great physician. You write a referral to the great physician. Trust him, obey him, follow him. Instead of loving the world, love the word. Get the fork out of the plate and into your system. Set your life under his authority. He will keep you safe from the chronic spiritual diseases that can make us sick. See, God in his word not only identifies the problem telling us of the illness and the symptoms, God in his son offers the perfect remedy. We apply that remedy first in baptism, then we continue to apply that remedy by walking in a manner worthy of our calling. Let's be standing while we sing. Oh, <clears throat> Tenderly Jesus is 